You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, Murdoch, he's coming for you. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. <laughs> yes, but the question is, which Murdoch? Is it Howlin' Mad, or is it the cartoon guy from the Gorillas? <laughs> it's the guy from Marvel Comics, which I know that's not his name, but it's almost like Murdoch. Ah, uh, not Matt. Murdock, you know what I'm talking about? The Daredevil. Yeah, like the floating brain inside the TV set. Oh, or something. that's Modoc. Yeah, okay. So Modoc, not yeah. Murdoch, but Modoc. Close Whew. enough. Close, Close enough. Close enough for jazz. Close enough. And just throw a couple extra letters in there. No worries. What's going on? How are you? I'm all right. I had an epiphany this week, and I wanted to share it with you because it's the sort of thing that you and I both marvel over now and then. And speaking of marvel, I happen to be flipping through Tumblr, looking at articles and blogs and and stuff. And someone mm-hmm. had posted a, just a photograph of the old Tron stand-up video game from the arcades when we were kids. Oh, the arcade, yeah. Yeah, the, the arcade game. And it, yep. and it was, yeah, the quarter muncher. And it was and on the screen of the arcade game, it had that four-colored circle would pick which type of game you wanted to go play, right? So you went to the light cycle game, or you went to the tanks game, or you went yep. to the throwing the things through the master control program screen game. Or uh, you did the throwing the, whatever the hell those things were called, the discs, right? And I was looking at that and it dawned on me as I was looking at that in the movie, not the game itself, but in the movie, the four games that ultimately get referenced are Pong, Space Invaders, Uh Snakes, or there was a game called Quicks that was like that too. Surround, I think. Surround, yeah. And Breakout. Those are the four things that the characters all do in the movie. In the arcade version of, of Tron, you could actually make an argument for the old combat or whatever it was called on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Right, right. For, for the, the tanks, yeah, for the tank game. But like in the film, there are tanks in the film too that they chase the light cycles once they break out of the yeah. game grid, right? And the other things that fly around there was that Space Paranoids game that made the creator of Tron super famous, and that was pretty much yeah. Space Invaders. If you look at the, yes. the and and it I I it all came together in like this sort of shimmering dizziness as I looked at the huh. picture. So I saw that I think in 1980 or 81 when it came out in the cinema. I haven't watched it. Tron. I think maybe, it was 82. Uh, so 82 then going back a ways, but I haven't yeah. watched it really since then. I might have watched it on cable once or twice. Oh, I just watched it not all that recently. My uh, my friend Bob had caught wind that I had never seen it, so he was like, "Oh, you never seen Tron?" It's like. No, I've never seen it. <laughs> they ask you again after that. Are you sure you really haven't yes. seen it? <laughs> You've never seen Tron. <laughs> so we sat down and we watched Tron. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, months ago, whatever it was. But yeah, I had never seen it. But like you're saying about the four video games that kind of like make up. You got to remember, man, 1982, 
video games were not as everywhere as they are now. Right. And basically, there were only four video games, four good ones anyway. I think by 82, there was Defender and there was like Joust and some others. But what surprised me, like they started making Tron in 1980, where those four, Breakout, Pong, Space yeah. Invaders, and and Snakes, were the most prominent ones. Those were the big ones. And I realized, yeah. like, it's like a four-video game movie. There's that whole saying that there's basically only, like, seven stories. Yeah. And everything is built around those seven plot devices. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe it's more than seven. Maybe it's 13. But whatever. There's a finite amount of plot devices. Right. And everything is built around that. And I guess you can kind of make the same argument for video games. You know, there's only yep. so many genres where everything is just built off of that. Right. And so you get to those like indie video games that I constantly get barraged with on the PlayStation Network <laughs> that it's not even a game. You're just like walking around as the game happens around you. I got friends that love games like that. Right. And it's like, why? This is a walking simulator. Yeah, what are was, you even doing? Yes, that's uh, that was my experience playing the Fallout games. It was it was like, what am I doing this for? Like, if, if I wanted to oh. walk across the desert, I'd go find a desert to walk across. This is boring as all get out. No, at least in the Fallout game, there was something to do in between the hours of walking around. This other one that I'm talking about, oh, I can't remember the name of it. It happens right after the rapture or something. No, and you're like know. walking around. And like this, you're literally not doing anything but walking around and finding out like what happened. It's like a straight line, A to B. Oh, there's no winning, no losing. Right, yeah, right, I right. Know. I do play a walking simulator called Daisy, which is you spawn on the beach and you've got a t-shirt and a pear, and you have to go find food and weapons, and it's a giant open world game full of zombies. It's very fun. No, I'm good with my driving games. Speaking of driving, young Jeff, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that in a minute, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. I don't remember when it was. We've been doing these shows for a couple of years now. Long time. But I remember at one time we talked about what a monumental thing it was whenever whoever it was added lights to the baseball field so that they could play Baseball games at night now. Yes. I've been to Fenway whenever they had a concert. I've never seen baseball there. I could give a shit. But uh, I've been over there for concerts, and I watched them turn on the lights you know, at night. And it's right. really cool because they're full-spectrum lights. It looks like sunlight. It's yeah. really cool. Yes. So now all the baseball stadiums have these lights so they can play their night games. Yes. But somebody's got to be last. It's Who true. Who was the last one to get on the ball? Oh, man. The baseball, that is. And install nightlights so they can have. The yep. uh, well, I'll tell you at the end of the show. I'll Thank be the last you. one yep. to answer the question. How about that? <laughs> All right, but this is a week beginning September the 11th, and I believe it is your turn to start. Ah, uh, September 11th, 1970. The Ford Motor Company introduces the Ford Pinto to the world. Now, jokes aside <laughs> about the Ford Pinto, the reason that Ford. <laughs> And there's a lot of them, too. There are Actually, a lot of them. Actually, there's not a lot. There's one joke with a thousand <laughs> variations. <laughs> there is one joke with a thousand variations. And if, uh, you know, you touch the butt and it explodes and kills you. The reason Ford released, made and released this car is that there were already concerns about the cost of gas and the terrible mileage that the typical American cars were getting. The Japanese were yes. just starting to come into the United States with Toyota and Datsun. And they got mm-hmm. you know, 20 or 30 miles to the gallon even then. So Ford needed a small car, 
and the Pinto was it. It could fit a family of five with a little hatchback. It had a little tiny four-cylinder motor. I think it made 62 horsepower, but it was yep. good-looking, especially for the time. <laughs> Questionable. Questionable, but it was good-looking for the time, and it was different, and it was meant to compete with the Japanese. And also, if you got re-rendered in it, there was a chance that it would explode and murder you and your entire family. Yeah, that was a thing. That was kind of a thing that the Ford Pintos, I guess there was a couple of instances where the rear bumper got hit pretty good and it just ignited the gas tank and that was it for your car. Hope you had good insurance. Yeah, it tended to happen, I think, when the gas tank was at half full or less because it builds up uh, It builds up. That's the being fumes. optimistic. <laughs> what makes the story of the Ford Pinto more sad, I think, is Ford could have recalled all of the Pintos in 1970, 1971 model year and fixed the uh, gas tank. But that would have cost like $12 million. They calculated that it, if they paid out to the families of everybody who had a potential to die in a fiery explosion, it would be less than $12 million. So they figured they'd save the money and pay out anybody who was injured. That is insanity. That is insanity in one sentence. Yeah. Holy cow. The Ford Pinto is a problematic car f- for that reason. Now, <laughs> what do they got? Ivan Drago working over <laughs> in corporate over there? <laughs> it did die, it did die. <laughs> I'm sure that the calculator that they used to figure this out, it felt bad printing the numbers for them. Like, do the calculations yeah. again, please. You know, um, It definitely is a sucky business proposition. Again, I don't know. The guy that was running the show at the time was Lee Iacocca. And he would go on to run Chrysler into the ground and then resurrect him in the 1980s. But that was his baby. The Pinto was his baby. Subsequent versions of the Pinto didn't have that problem. That was an engineering fix that they made, I think, starting the 72 model year. And what did them in after that was that they, you pretty much got them wet and they immediately started to rust. (laughs) They just didn't hold up. And they had little teeny tiny engines that got overtaxed. And didn't keep running. So they were kind of disposable. They had built-in planned obsolescence. So parts would fail. And eventually they'd need to be replaced. The whole vehicle would have to be replaced. My mental image of the Ford Pinto is also reminiscent of another American piece of (laughs) s***. The AMC Gremlin. They were kind of similar shaped. They were similar shaped, yes. And the Gremlin, I think, came first... The Gremlin was designed by American Motors to, again, to be a a domestic answer to Japanese imports. Uh It was designed by uh, Dick Teague, who was a super famous designer from the 1950s and 60s, who found himself at AMC in the end of the 1960s. And he just cut the back end at an angle off of the Hornet. And that's where the Gremlin came from and why the proportions were so weird and why the hood was so long. Because originally it had a back seat. With a second door and a trunk. I remember that car, my friend's mother had one of those cars, Mm -hmm. and it was so small that us, a bunch of teenagers, were able to pick it up and move it (laughs) out of her driveway onto the front lawn. Yes. Yep. (laughs) The the mother comes out, what the hell is going on? (laughs) The Pinto sort of spawned the domestic small car market, so not to be outdone, General Motors released their uh, effectively their version of the car called the Vega, which didn't have the same exploding rear end problem. It had the uh, the, the hood that opened up backwards. It had the hood that opened up backwards. That's because it was based on an Opal design from Europe, and that was like all the rage. But Mm -hmm. it, it had their terrible engine called the Iron Duke in it, which had a cast iron lower end and an aluminum upper end, which guaranteed it would warp and destroy the head gaskets. 
<laughs> also, that car, if you showed it a picture of rain, it started to rust. <laughs> All right. Moving on to September the 12th, 1975. One of my favorite bands, Pink Floyd, releases one of my favorite albums, Wish You Were Here. That is my favorite of Pink Floyd's entire catalog, is that record. Is it? Yeah. I love I think I love that record. I think that would be my favorite Pink Floyd album if it wasn't for the song Welcome to Machine, which is not not my favorite song, Pink Floyd song from them. But because the way that album is structured, this all right, so the album begins with the song called Shine On You Crazy Diamond, like parts one through five. Yes. It's mostly instrumental. There's, a, you know, there are some lyrics to it, but not many considering how long the song is. Right. It's like 12 minutes long. I love Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I yeah, think that song's too. beautiful. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of music. Then it goes into Welcome to Machine. And Welcome to the Machine, like I said, it's not my favorite. And it really, really kind of slams the brakes on that album. Agreed. Um, no argument yep. from me there. Yep. And then next up, we have a song called Have a Cigar, which is one of the very few, I think there's only three, Pink Floyd songs where they actually have an external vocalist. So Have a Cigar is not sung by any of the members of Pink Floyd. Did you know that? I did not know that. It's not Dave Gilmore? No, and it's not Roger Waters. If you, if you listen to it, you could make an argument that it's either one of them, but it's not. Like, if you listen to... Because I always thought it was Roger Waters singing that song. And you're thinking it's David Gilmore. I think Gilmore. it's David... I immediately thought it was David Gilmore. Every time I've listened to it, I'm like, this is David, one of David Gilmore's better tunes for him to sing. Yep, that is, but it's not him. That is not either one of them singing that song. Wow, I had no idea. It is sung by a guy named Roy Harper. Huh. Roy Harper was just basically a, a studio musician. And he was a friend of Roger Waters. Huh. <laughs> Hey, Roy, you, you want to put a track down on this one? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I had no Could idea. You? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's... basically, they recorded tracks with David Gilmore singing it and with Roger Waters singing it. At that point of the time, that's when Roger Waters started getting, like, control freak stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't like the way anybody was singing it, so they called in this other guy to sing it. Yep. Huh. So the next up after that is the title track, Wish You Were Here, which everybody is going to know and the, recognize. The one song I can play almost all the way through on guitar. That's the only one. That's a beautiful song. I and agree. Lyrically, lyrically, that song is wonderful. Yes, I agree. The album wraps up with a reprise of Shine On You Crazy Diamond for yep. another... Uh, like 13 another minutes or something. Section. Yeah, it's like it, it, yeah. it's huge. It's a huge song. Yeah, it's another four parts, and it's, uh, yeah, about 12, 12 and a half minutes, yep. That's a nice bookend for the album, with Shine On You Crazy Diamond like that, yeah. And I love that it ends, It's again, it fades the end into the beginning, so it's like an Ouroboros, you know, snake eating its tail. So when yeah. you listen to it all the way to the end and start it over again, it's like it has a connecting point. They would go on to do that with The Wall, and other bands would do that too, but this is the first time I remember that ending piece of music leads directly into the beginning piece of music again. The album is thematic. All the songs kind of follow the same, you know, theme. Yes. Which was the original songwriter and singer for Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett. He had kind of gone he, he had a lot of problems. You know, he was schizophrenic and taking mounds and mounds of acid is not going to uh, not going to help that problem. Matter of fact, it's going to expedite it. Yes. And uh, he had to go away. And while they were recording the Wish You Were Here album, 
Sid just kind of like wandered into the studio and he was like, oh, hey, hi. Just wanted to see what was up. And then yeah, yep. everyone like thought they saw a ghost, basically. Yeah. And then he hung around for a little bit and then he walked out. And that was the last time anybody in the band ever saw him again. It is weird. He went off to just be like a painter who lived a very, very quiet life until he passed away in like 2006. I don't know that I've ever seen his paintings now that I think about it. No, I don't think I have either. His solo albums are very weird, Mm. very weird and interesting. I mean, Pink Floyd prior to Sid Barrett leaving, like the Sid Barrett Pink Floyd, is very, 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 very different. Yeah. Very different than what other people would think of Pink Floyd. This so there's like four distinct eras of Pink Floyd. Yes, and the Sid one is oddly enough not the weirdest one. <laughs> <laughs> so um. I I think I told this story on the show before, but it's been long enough I can tell it again real quick. I was on one of those back lot Hollywood tours. You know, I think I told yep. the story about being on that a couple of weeks ago too. We talked about the House of Wax, right? But when we were on the Backlot Hollywood tour, I'm looking around, and I'm looking around, and I was like, this all looks so familiar to me. And then I said to the woman that's giving the tour, I was like, is this where Pink Floyd took the photograph for Wish You Were Here with the guy shaking hands with the other guy on fire? And she's like, oh, no, that's two blocks over. I'll take you by there, though. I was like, wow! <laughs> so, I, yeah, I got nice. to take pictures right where that, was, uh, that photograph was taken, yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. That is very cool. All right, next up. September 13th, 1916. We have a celebrity birthday. I should say that. Uh, 1916, uh, a writer named Roald Dahl is born. You may not recognize that name. And I don't. And you don't. But you will recognize his output. So he's the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yep, that I know. The BFG or the Big Friendly Giant. James and the Giant Peach. And oh, he wrote that as well? Yep. The screenplay to the most wackadoo James Bond movie ever, You Only Live Twice. Oh, which one's that? That's the one where James Bond has plastic surgery to turn himself into a Japanese peasant so he can invade a volcano base in Japan <laughs> that is stealing, where Blofeld is stealing American and Soviet manned rockets with his special rocket that opens up and snatches them from orbit so that he can sell nuclear weapons. It's The movie's insane. I'm um, going to assume... That's a Roger Moore one. No, it is Sean Connery. It is. Is it Sean Connery? It, it is Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's my favorite James Bond film, and it is the most ridiculous one of them all. That's probably why it's my favorite. Because traditionally, the James Bond movies with Roger Moore are the real weird ones. Yeah, no, this one's even weirder than most of Roger Moore's, <laughs> except for maybe Octopussy. Octopussy is oh, really strange. Oh, I didn't realize that he. Um, like, I know Charlie and the Chocolate mm-hmm. Factory. I actually did the audiobook. I have an audiobook yep. version of that that's narrated by Eric Idle. Oh, yeah. Which has all the elements for awesome. Yeah. And then, oh, I didn't know that he wrote James and the Giant Peach. Yep. Indeed. Now, James and the Giant Peach is obviously a children's story and, you know, teaches a lesson. You know, sometimes you have to look at something a different way. Right. And then Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a story about a bunch of naughty little kids. And then before the show... You were telling me something about Mr. Uh, Rodal over here. In spite of the fact that he wrote a bunch of children's books. He didn't really like children. <laughs> <laughs> and he hated the Joseph E. Levine produced version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. Oh, um, really? Yeah, because they added all the songs. They added whimsy. There's no whimsy in the book. 
Oh, no, no, there certainly isn't. The children's fates was left ambiguous in the movie and it wasn't in the book. And he, I, I think he'd written the screenplay, but then they edited it to add all of these elements. I think they're elements that make the story better for a film presentation, but Rold did not see it that way. The story that I know from his biography is, um, or from Patricia Neal's biography, Patricia Neal was his wife. She was in The Day the Earth Stood Still and a bunch of other movies in the 1960s and 1950s. And they were in a hotel in New York, and he was sitting down watching a movie on the hotel room TV. And he looked over at her, and he goes, what is this movie? <laughs> she said, that's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He goes, oh, and turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even recognize his own work. That's didn't even recognize his own work, yeah. All right, moving on. September the 14th, 1901. A, at that point in time, 42-year-old Theodore Roosevelt is sworn in. Uh, making him the youngest U.S. president. He wasn't the youngest elected president. That honor goes to John F. Kennedy. Right. But he was the youngest president because he became the president. He was the vice president underneath uh, McKinley, who right. got killed, assassinated. Yeah, killed by an anarchist, shot in the belly uh, outside of the World's Fair in Buffalo, New York. Tough way to go. Uh, yeah. Ted Roosevelt has got a bunch, like a, a bunch of asterisks underneath his name for example he was the first u.s president to ride in an automobile yep that was in 1902 he was the first um, u.s president to wrestle a saltwater crocodile no he didn't actually do that i made that up uh, <laughs> but he would have yeah oh oh yeah for sure uh he was kind of a badass uh recent news stories notwithstanding but he was the first uh president to be submerged in a submarine 1905 right first one to fly in an airplane 1910 and as of this writing he is the only U.S. president not to use the word I in his inaugural address, ah. which I think is pretty cool, where he was more talking about the we's instead of the I's, which is good. Uh, yeah, I'll have to go look the address up now to see it, because you've piqued my curiosity. I want to yep. see how he structured that. Uh, first American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Right. Uh, 1906. He once uh, uh, no. arm-wrestled 35 lumberjacks in a row and beat them all. No, <laughs> that's not true. Has the world record for a number of tater tots shoved in his mouth at a high school cafeteria. He invented karate and then <laughs> used karate to beat up kung fu. He divided one by zero and pulled it off somehow. <laughs> <laughs> he solved the Drake equation using only his fingers. <laughs> he put the bop in the bop shibop shibop. <laughs> He uh, is known for his motto, this is true, he is known for his motto, speak softly and carry a big stick, even though he was shot while on his way to deliver a speech. He should have carried a stick instead of a a bulletproof vest or whatever. It was his speech that saved him. So he had like a giant speech and it was the bullet hit the speech in his pocket. Oh, that's that's right. That's what saved him. I remember hearing that story, yeah. He He actually, he was on the way to give the speech, got shot. Delivered the speech and then went to the hospital. Right. Yeah, that guy's a he was pretty strong. Before he was president, he was also like the American hero of the Spanish American War, which pick your political side and how you want to view the history of it. He led soldiers in person up San Juan Hill to fight in a actual battle in nineteen oh five or something. Known for his athleticism during his presidency, while he was the president of the United States. Imagine that. Imagine this. In, like, modern politics, uh, right? Well, considering he was very young and most of our politicians are very old now. But during his presidency, he participated in a boxing match. And he ended <laughs> up losing his sight in his left eye during that match. And this is a real thing. He took up boxing because 
when he was a schoolboy, he had asthma. And uh-huh. as a way to sort of overcome his asthma, he wanted to do whatever the, the sport was that was going to make his cardiovascular system work the hardest. And he took, he ended up taking up boxing for that reason, which not to say that's, to a, that's is, a good one. Yeah. It's insane. Um, yep. but you know what? That's, you can't spell Theodore Roosevelt without T E D D Y insane. <laughs> hey, there's no I in Theodore Roosevelt. There you go. <laughs> that's right. And somehow we managed to leave out the fact that he's on Mount Rushmore. Yes. And he's also who they named the, the he's the Ted in Teddy Bear. Yes, he is. Yep. What a guy you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. You're okay. Also, big honking mustache. Definitely made the, the soup strainer popular. All right. Uh, moving on. September 15th, 1965, the TV show Lost in Space premieres on CBS. The first episode is called The Reluctant Stowaway, and the plot of which sets the entire series in motion, in which a man steals aboard the ship and reprograms the robot to kill everyone, hence the phrase, kill, crush, destroy. That man being Dr. Smith, who stows away on the, the ship that gets lost because the robot destroys all the navigation equipment. I thought he said Klaatu Verata Nikto. <laughs> no, that's uh, Patricia Neal's in that movie, but that was The Day the Earth Stood Still. But that's the same robot, isn't it? Nope. It's not the same robot. The Day the Earth Stood Still. I cannot Still's get these robot robots was... straight. What the hell, dude? <laughs> the, the Day the Earth Stood Still's robot was Gort. Okay. That film came out in like 1954, 1951. 1951. Okay. Anyway. Um, right, so that's The Day the Earth Stood Still. And then Lost in Space had two robots on it, you said, right? Well, it had two episodes with two robots. So the robot okay. that was the main robot of the show, or just known as Robot, was B9. That was his designation. That's the, the one that everybody seems to know. It kind of has like a, a Tesla coil at the top of his head. Yeah. The, um, one, that, the one that says, arm, Danger Will Robinson. Danger. Danger yeah. Will Robinson. That's that's um, B9. Yeah. Heating duck arms that shoot out from his nipples kind <laughs> of like straight out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And sometimes yeah. wave crazily as he's yelling, Danger, Will Robinson. Yeah. Um, danger, danger. The, the yeah. other robot that showed up on Lost in Space was Robbie the Robot, who was a robot created for the, I think it was for Disney, for the film Forbidden Planet, again in the 1950s, and was really famous for being in that film. Mm-hmm. So Robbie the Robot and B9 appeared in two episodes. War of the Robots and the another one. I can't remember the other one's name. And, and... One of the stars uh, who we just mentioned there, Will Robinson, the actor who played Will Robinson, went on to be in the band Barnes and Barnes, who we covered on Worst Song Ever with this song, Fish Heads. Yep, that's Bill Mummy was his name. Nice. I remember they made a movie about Lost in Space a couple of years ago. Uh, that must They did. Be, yeah, that must be one of those contractual obligation Movies like, ah, oh, we still got the rights for this. Let's pump out a movie before we lose them. Yeah, it was part of the big nostalgia boom in the like late 1990s or early 2000s. And it had Matt LeBlanc in it as not the only one that was not in the family. What the hell was his name? Don West. Uh, he was like the pilot. Pretty good. It, you can watch it. It's streaming. Like, it's not a terrible movie. It just, it's, it's okay. Uh, I've never, I've never seen it. And to be honest, I don't remember much about the TV show Lost in Space. So the that very was, that was like one of those things that it would come on in syndication when I was a kid, and I was like, 
Wait, they're in space and there's no Darth Vader? Not interested. Oh, I I loved it. I watched it in syndication from when I was like three years old or younger. Um, The very first nightmare that I remember from being a little, little kid, I woke up, you know, covered in sweat, screaming for my mom. I don't think my brother Mark was even born yet, so I would have been Uh three years old or younger. And the nightmare was that I was being chased by a dinosaur and the only adult that could help me was Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. And Dr. Smith is a giant, incompetent, terrified idiot. So I wasn't getting any help. That's what frightened me much so much that I mm-hmm. woke up. Yeah. Oh, I I did not even realize this. I know they made a movie, but they actually rebooted the TV series in 2018 on Netflix. Yeah, it didn't didn't last. Uh, it lasted three seasons. Um, yeah. I think my sister-in-law liked it. I'm not sure. Yep. I'll probably get a phone call from my brother in five, four, three, <laughs> two. Yeah, to tell me no, she loved it. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I never watched the remake of the show. Uh, the intellectual property wasn't as interesting to me as it was in its original format where it was really silly. And for a time, it was more popular than Star Trek. In fact, it outlasted Star Trek on the air and influenced a whole bunch of other TV shows until Batman hit in 1966. All right, moving on to September the 16th, 1988, a day that will live in infamy. <laughs> One of the saddest days of my life. I, I know people that are still not completely over this day. Yeah, there's a bunch and, of them online. I see their posts yep, yep. from Facebook every day. Now, this is going to mean a lot to you and me and maybe one or two of our listeners, but nobody else. But God damn it, I'm talking about it. So September 16th, 1988, original lead singer for the progressive rock band Marillion. My favorite rock band ever. My favorite band ever. Fish decides that he's going to go solo and uh, quits the band. And that worked out super great because he hit the charts 100 million times after that, right? Yeah, that worked out great for (laughs) everybody, yeah. So Marillion was this prog rock band that came up through, not so much from singles, from live performances. They had very uh, energetic and... uh, theatrical performances there was a lot of comparisons in their early days to yes. peter gabriel genesis and fish used to do like the uh the face paint and stuff like that so they put out an, a concept album in 1985 called misplaced childhood which had a very uh popular single on it called kaylee which would have been the number one song for the year in the uk in 1985 if it wasn't for my other favorite song <laughs> do they know it's christmas <laughs> I remember that Kaylee was that was the very first time I heard them on FM radio because they that song used to get play on either WCOZ or WHAY now and then. And I I remember my friend Mike saying, oh, yeah, they're like the who don't they sound like Pete Townsend, like the heavy metal who? And I was like, oh, no. And why is the word heavy metal in there? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like a Rodney Dangerfield of comedy. And then they sort of disappeared. And it wasn't until you started to play them when we were out hanging around that I got to listen to them and realize they had more than like one song and they had a bunch of other albums and I remembered Kaylee uh, being you know in some minor rotation on MTV I remember seeing it on the Headbangers Ball and again they're not a heavy metal band but Fish and Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden were really good friends and Bruce Dickinson happened to be hosting the Headbangers Ball that night and he's like, oh, this is my good friend Fish and Marillion. Mm-hmm. And I love the song. It's a it's a great song. It's an amazing song. It's a very good song. And then some years later, I saw a video 
and I didn't know who it was, but I liked the song. It had a lot of keyboards to it. And the title of the song or the repeating word in the song was something it was it, I didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me. Right. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to stick around and see what the hell they're saying. And then the name of the song was Incommunicado. Oh yeah, I love that song. Yeah, so do I. And then I was like, oh wait. That's Marillion. I remember them. They're the Kaylee band. Right. And I went out and I bought the album and I absolutely couldn't stand it. I remember you bought me a copy of the tape uh, for a dollar out of the dollar bin. The week Which bef- album was that? Uh, Clutching at Straws. The week before oh, yeah. we went to see them live in Boston. Oh, yeah. And don't think I listened to it, but maybe one time. And at that show in Boston with their new singer, they did Incommunicado, and it's one of the best live songs I've ever heard. And it became one of my favorite of all of their songs from all of their records. And uh, here we are, X amount of years later, and Steve Hogarth is still considered the new singer, even though he's been on like five times as many albums as Fish was on. Right. It's one of those stories where the lead singer just wants to... I don't know. I don't know what gets into these people's heads. Like Peter Cetera left Chicago so to have a solo career. It's like you want to sing songs. You're singing songs now. You know. Yeah, I was like, well, I well when Peter Chris left Kiss to sing songs yeah. and not play the drums. Yeah, <laughs> that worked out really well for him too. Right. Unfortunately for both Fish and Marillion, they never reached the heights that they had. When they were together, Marillion still has a cult following. The fans that they have are absolutely ravenous. You're talking to one of them right now. Mm-hmm. I think fish fans are the same way. There just aren't quite as many of them. You will see the same arguments about trying to get the original guys from Kiss back into the fold. Mm-hmm. Even though we've heard, you know, uh, videos and we've seen videos of them, you know, now and they they Ace and Peter cannot hold up with. Gene and Paul. Gene and Paul have been working at this this whole time. You right. Know? So, I mean, there's a lot of nostalgia for nostalgia's sake and all that. Yep. There's people that still post daily that they wish that Fish would get back together with Marillion. It's like, I, I don't know how much of a great idea that is yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want that to happen. You know, it's, no. it's, it's like talking to metal fans about Iron Maiden. Who yeah. still like cling to the very first record with Paul Diano as the greatest of all Iron Maiden records, and wish that they would tour together? It's like Bruce Dickinson's been in that band since 1980, you know. Right. Up until the two years he was out, and Blaze Bailey was in, and Blaze Bailey's records are good. Paul Diano's records are good, but they're all yep. different. We were just talking about the Blaze Bailey albums with I Am yeah. and my friend yep. Bob and I. We had gone out to New Jersey, so we had a lot of time to talk. And we were talking about the Blaze Bailey albums. And it's like, they're not bad albums. They're as good as any bad Bruce Dickinson album. Yeah. Like, I, I don't have any dislike for the... It sounds a little different. The production is a little weird. But no, I think they're just very interesting Iron Maiden records, even if I don't put them on very often. Whenever... Fish left Marillion. I was literally depressed for like a week. No, no smoke. Mm-hmm. But um, whenever their respective albums came out, uh, Fish's first solo album, Vigil, and Marillion's first album without Fish, Seasons End. I was just happy that I had twice as much music as I had before. All right, and let's wrap up the week. September seventeenth, nineteen forty-five. William Golding's book that is forced by schools for every high schooler to read. The Lord of the Flies is first published. Have you ever read The Lord of the Flies, Bill? Uh, just recently. 
I mm. found a podcast where a guy does audio books of like I'll say classics, but they're more like modern classics. Yeah. It's not like he's reading um, Shakespeare or something like that. Right, right, it's, right. Uh, so, yeah, I just did Lord of the Flies maybe about a month ago. Ah, I read it, jeez, I want to say nine years ago, I did like a summer reading thing here, which was all summer classics. That was when my kids were still going to my mother's house for the summer because uh-huh. they weren't old enough to be left alone while I was working. So right, I, read, right. I read a bunch of classics from my library. And the first one that I read in that was The Lord of the Flies, which I had never read before in oh, our high school. Our high school experience, Bill, was different than most people's high school experience because yes, we went to a vocational yeah. school. We we didn't have as much required reading. We um, don't have time for this reading business. Yeah. Hey, you know, unless you show me how to read a micrometer, I'm not interested. There was that one teacher that we watched movies all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. But I, I, I read it and I really enjoyed it and realized that it's that's not the first time that this kind of story is told where a group of people end up in an isolated place and have to build a society to survive. It's one of the 13 stories, Jeff. It's one of the 13 stories. But this is the first time that I remember it being an allegory for humanity in general or for public school or for the workplace. Like, it applies to all of these different sort of scenarios. Give a quick rundown for people that don't know. Uh, A plane carrying a whole bunch of kids from a British public school crashes or a boat sinks. I can't remember which. I think it's a plane crashes. And they all end up on this remote island, and they have to work together to survive. There's only a relatively small amount of food. And in the course of the time that they're on the island, the same social hierarchies that they had in school re-manifest themselves in this island society and end up killing the one kid that's like the smartest of the group because he's like an obese kid and no one likes him and he's from a low-class family and... He's an easy target. He's an easy target. He becomes the scapegoat for everything that goes wrong. And the group of like really religious kids or really wild kids, really strong kids, they all end up sort of working together to bully the others into building the society the way that they see it. And it sort of functions the same way that British public school does. Or if you read it not being a British public school student, it's the way that the hierarchies sort of are mirrored in the workplace or in government. You can make allegories to any of those things. Right. And Another book that I just did through that mm-hmm. podcast series is I just did George Orwell's Animal Farm. Another book that I had never read up yes. until now. And Animal Farm and Lord of the Flies, while very different stories, are also very similar stories. Yes. Animal Farm, too, is is an allegory. Four legs good, two legs bad. Right? Yeah. it's a, They completely restructure a, a society from the ground up, but over a matter of time, it still takes the same form that they were rallying against in the first place. Yes. Pigs and same thing the with Lord of the Flies. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And yeah. for those of you who are in our audience that are interested in this sort of story style and don't want to read something horrifically depressing, because you know what, Lord of the Flies, it's not the feel-good book of 1954. But if you want to read one that has a much happier ending and, and more interesting development structure read a book called tunnel in the sky by robert heinlein in which a group of people are sent to a distant planet and have to work together to build a society and in the case of that book they do oh all right okay so uh moving on we got our interesting holiday for this week september the 13th jeff we are going to be celebrating fortune cookie day oh hey i love fortune cookies do you know yeah i i append them with on the toilet because oh, it's sure. fun to read with your kids when you say, like, 
you will find happiness with a new love on the toilet. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that. And then I was like kind of correcting you. I said, I think you're supposed to say in bed. And you're like, yeah, but I'm not going to say that to my kids because that's weird and creepy. They don't know what it means. They don't know why it's funny. Right. Yeah. Right. I actually just like fortune cookies like the cookie itself. I like fortunes be damned. I like the texture. I like the crunchiness of it. Right, like right. The, the bland vanilla flavor. Yeah, the the moderately light sweetness. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're interesting. I always look forward to those at the end of a meal from a Chinese restaurant. I've never made them at home, but... I remember one time I had gone out to a Chinese Christmas dinner with my friend and his parents. You know, mm-hmm. It was either Christmas or something like that, whatever, New Year's Day. And the fortune cookies come out. Yep. I made a big deal out of the fact that you're not supposed to pick your own fortune cookie. Right. You know, somebody else is supposed to pick your cookie. So, and I made a deal. Uh, thing. I was like, I go, grab the fortune cookie for me. He's like, what do you, he goes, it's right there. Just grab it yourself. I go, you no, have you to do it. You don't know how it works. You're going to ruin go, it. You have to, I go, you have to, you can't pick your own fortune cookie. He looks at me, he goes, you're an atheist, but you won't pick your own fortune cookie. <laughs> That's right. You know, there are standards. Yeah. Those I are was, my standards. And if you don't like them, I have others. I wasn't telling you to anoint my head with oil. Just give me a goddamn yeah. fortune cookie. All right. Uh, let's real quick get on to the news of the weird. <laughs> All right. So uh, our news of the weird article for September the 16th, 2007. Brian Blair, now a county commissioner in Tampa, Florida, asserted in a 2002 lawsuit that he had been forced into retirement from his previous career as a professional wrestler. It probably uh, extended his lifespan by a few yeah. decades. After he tripped over a tray of dishes and hurt himself at a Caribbean restaurant. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Blair announced in August of 2007 that the settlement had been reached with Caribbean. And thus, he would not explain, according to the deposition, how the career-ending injury allowed him to keep lucrative wrestling dates in Japan months after he fell. <laughs> yeah, they, it also didn't mention how he registered a .089 blood alcohol reading that right. evening, even though he uh, admitted to having only one sip of wine. Yeah, one <laughs> sip. <laughs> yep. He sips wine like I sip wine. Yeah. Yep. Now he's the county commissioner in Tampa, Florida. That's uh, Brian Blair. He used to be known as B. Brian Blair. Yep, I remember. The, the Killer, Killer Bees. Bees. Yeah. 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 One of the Iron Sheik's best friends in the wrestling business. I, I remember them being, st- that tag team being super acrobatic, and that's why I liked watching them so much. Yep, it was B. Brian, Brian Blair, Blair and Jumping and Jim Brunzel. Jumping Jim Brunzel. Yeah, that, yep. they were great. They, yeah, they were kind of great. They never got any gold. Matter of no. fact, you could... You could compare them to the worst movie ever. Okay, Jeff, uh, the worst <laughs> movie ever this week was brought to us by your friend and mine, Mr. Jeff McLarge. Yes. You're the one who suggested this to me. What have you done? I, what have you done? <laughs> I watched the worst movie ever. I was looking for something to watch with my girlfriend, and we settled on the 1980 exploitation classic, The Exterminator. Which Jeez, were you trying to break up? My uh, God. <laughs> well, no, nah, she li- she's like me in that she likes movies that other people turn their noses up to, especially okay. if there are sharks in them. I put it on, and I remember seeing the sequel in the movies and really enjoying it, even though it was really stupid. So I don't. You saw no- The Exterminator 2? I saw The Exterminator 2. 
And I don't... Yeah. Um, and I probably wouldn't have had I seen The Exterminator 1. Because The Exterminator 1 is... It's an even cheaper version of Death Wish. With characters who are less likable than everybody in Death Wish. Including the people that get killed by Paul Casey. In war, you have to kill to survive. On the streets of New York, the choice is the same. For The Exterminator... search is on. The police are chasing a killer who's not only smarter than they are, he's doing their job. That's what it's like to be a victim. The exterminator, the man they push too far. The, every character in this movie is like clip art or stock photos. <laughs> yep. Well, let me see if I can summarize all five movies that are jammed into this one 80-minute uh, confusing fest. We open in Vietnam. It takes half the budget to shoot this five-minute scene, right? Where yep. Robert Ginty, the main character, and his friend, played by Steve James, are fighting off the Viet Cong, and they get wounded and captured. And then they fight their way out. It takes five minutes. There's explosions everywhere. There's helicopters all over the place. a lot of explosions. A lot of explosions. And they're fun explosions, too, because they're not blowing up anything. Right. It's like a KISS concert, basically. Yeah, yeah. It was propane-tastic. But that's that's literally where half the budget of the movie went, was that scene. So then cut to New York City. And Steve James is working in a place where they, like, send out beer cans. It's like... He's in a warehouse full of cans. I don't know what else to call it, a beer can place. Um, His friend, Robert Ginty, comes to see him and visit with him. And, you know, they hang out for a bit. And then they get jumped by a gang. And they beat the gang up. So there's there's like that story. Then Steve James gets jumped by the gang the next morning. And they use a a gardening tool to paralyze him. Yeah. I want to say that sentence out loud just because it's fun (laughs) to say. They mug the secondary character, uh, throw him to the ground... And now this gang is like, it's not even a gang. It's three guys. Yeah. And it's just like almost every other movie where the gang is like the Burger King Kids Club. Like, you don't really see three completely different people hanging out together, let alone form a gang together. Right. You know? Anyway, they throw this guy to the ground. They just like take this garden tool, like one of those ones that kind of looks like a, a metal hand. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And you know, they, drag it looks it, like the, they drag it down his back. Yeah, it looks like the Terminator hand coming out of the lava, right? Yep. So, yeah, they just, like, jam it into his back and then scrape, and that paralyzes him. I don't know a lot about the spinal column, but somehow they make him a complete quadriplegic <laughs> by hitting him sort of in the middle to the lower part of the spine. And all that Steve James can do for the remainder of the movie is blink. And look sideways, left and right, in the hospital With bed. With a gardening tool! So so that's, this is the first movie of yeah. these five movies that are jammed together. And that is Robert Ginty finds out that this happened to Steve James and he's paralyzed, so he's going to take revenge. Right. So he takes revenge. He finds one of the gang members and threatens to torch him with a flamethrower, but he doesn't. Then he goes to the gang's clubhouse and he murders them all in cold blood with a machine gun. The clubhouse, which is strategically labeled clubhouse. <laughs> clubhouse, yeah. In a regular movie, that would be the whole movie. That's all of Death Wish, right? Instead yeah, of Steve James, like, it's Paul Casey's wife. 
They're only like 15 minutes into the movie right now. The script, right. writer, must, the script writer must have been like, uh, what else I got? They're 15 minutes into the movie, and the first seven minutes is the Vietnam experience, right? So, like, yeah. it's only eight minutes of movie. So, right. normally, there would be, like, the end, and that would be the end of the film. So, what, what happens is, well, he goes back to see his friend in the hospital, and he's like, I really liked killing those guys. I, th- I think I probably need help. I think I'm going to crack. All right. In the course of this, like, you, you, you learn that there are mobsters who are taking protection money from, like, the guy at the beer can warehouse and where Robert Ginty works in a meatpacking plant. So Robert Ginty spots the two bagmen who come to get money from, I guess, from his boss and decides to kill the mob boss from the meat mob, which he does. He kidnaps him, kills a bunch of his guys, and then he drops him into a meat hamburger making thing, a yeah. grinder, right? He's hanging above this meat grinder thing. The exterminator is, like, threatening to drop him in there. Right. So he's going to go to the exterminator's house and get the money. Right. So he can he can help pay for the medical bills of right. his friends that's yes. in the hospital, right? Yes. So he was like, where's the safe? And then the guy, like, explains where in the house the safe is. First, he gives him the address of the house. Yep. Then he tells him where in the house the safe is. Then he gives him the combination to the safe. Like... But he doesn't tell him there's a giant Doberman pincher that hasn't been fed in two days that's guarding the safe. Hold on. I'm not even there yet. <laughs> he gives up all this information. I mean, yeah, he's under duress. He's uh, you know about to get crunched up in a meat grinder. But I didn't see the exterminator taking out like a pad of paper and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of information going on there. So anyway, he gets to the house. And, you know, goes to the safe and there's this Doberman Pincher. And then he comes back and he goes, hey, you son of a bitch. You didn't tell me about the Doberman Pincher. And drops the guy into, into the, the meat, meat grinder. grinder. And then all the meat, like, comes out. And suspiciously, he dropped them in there fully clothed. But, like, you didn't see any buttons come out or nothing. That's a- <laughs> what, what surprised me about yeah. that is that when he, he hoists the guy up over the meat grinder, the meat boss says, like, what do you want? Do you want money? I'll give you however much money you want. He could have just said, like, I want $100,000, and he would have given it to him, and that would have been, again, the end, right? That's, yeah. that's where that movie would have ended. Credits. Now, we have to cut to the, the other movie that runs through the rest of the other two movies that are part of this stupid movie. <laughs> There's a police detective who finds out that all of the, the gang is dead, and none of the cops care because they, they all hate the gang, right? But one of the yeah. girls that was with them survives, and this detective finds her and figures out, like... What do you mean somebody came here with, with an M16 and shot all these guys? Who, who was he? Was he in a rival gang? And she said she didn't know who he was. And she sort of describes him. And then he goes off to try and figure out who this person is before they kill again. Meanwhile, in the third of our five movies here, Robert Ginty is out and sees a woman get mugged. And her purse gets stolen by some guys in a in a car. And then he chases the car and it was the, the guys in up. the... It was some of the guys, not all of them, not the ones that he shot up in the clubhouse, but it was was the other members members of the gang, yes. Of the ghoul gang. And this scene, like, was hilarious because they're in, like, a charger, like a Dodge Charger or something like that. And I don't know what was going on in the backseat of that car. Maybe the guy hasn't cleaned his car in a little bit. But all three guys were just smushed together in the front seat. I mean, I know the reason. It's it's for optics and all that. Yeah, but yeah. nobody rides in a car like that. Get, right. get out of here. Anyway, yeah. they, he kills those guys. And that finishes off the ghoul gang. Meanwhile, the detective starts talking to a doctor at the hospital. And they start having a relationship. None of this matters at all 
in the film, this relationship between the detective and the doctor. None of it. Well, there was it was to set up the fact that the uh, the friend that was paralyzed. Yep. Um, he's in there, and yes. the exterminator goes in, and he was like, yep. "Hey, uh, you're never gonna walk again. Would you, Would you like me to kill you? I could kill you because I'm really into this killing <laughs> thing like, now. Yeah, I'm right? doing pretty good at this. I'm gonna unplug you." And he literally like, unpl- unplugs the air machine from the wall and watches him die. He's like, "Blink twice if you want me to kill you," and he and he blinks twice, but it like wasn't like right in a row. It could have been easily interpreted <laughs> as like. <laughs> Another <laughs> blink that just so happened to happen. Like, was that really too? And like you said, he just sort of plugs it from the wall. Like, that's the way it works. Yeah. You know? Yep. So, like, again, the relationship between the, the doctor and this detective gets a ton of screen time. Out of the 80 yeah. or so minutes of this movie, it's like half an hour of it is no one cares. Like, they go to dinner. They go to a jazz club. Like, they go back to his apartment. Like, none of this matters. They don't talk about any of the plot elements related to the exterminator. Meanwhile, it's like in most slasher movies, there's always a sports game. It's just to pad the movie, right? Yeah, yes. So, meanwhile, the exterminator has started to send threatening letters to the the local news saying he's going to clean up the city. He's going to destroy all crime. He's going to, you know. I'm I'm Batman with a flamethrower. So the mayor of the city and the and and the governor are like, "Hey, we got to stop this guy. How are we going to stop this guy? This guy's going to cause a revolution." Which I don't know how they make that leap of faith, but they somehow go from crazy dude with military weapons to he's clearly going to lead a revolt of I don't even know who. <laughs> so he has to be dealt with. So they tell the detective, "You have to figure out who he is and and deal with him." So the detective is like, "Okay, I'm already trying to figure out who he is. What do you want me to do with him? I he's going to I'm going to arrest him if I catch him. That's what I'm going to do." And they just want him to be taken care of. I'm saying that with air quotes. Finds himself inside the guy's apartment. They figure out who he is because he kills his friend Steve James in the hospital. And the guy spots him on the stairway because he's been hanging out with his girlfriend, the doctor, in the hospital. And they pass each other in the hallway. Right? So he figures out where he lives because he spots him. And they go to his house and he's not there, very obviously. And calls his own phone from the payphone outside and says, meet me at the Navy Yard. And come alone. So he goes to the Navy Yard that night. They shoot at each other a lot. They get ambushed by the government spies from somewhere. They both look to get killed, except Robert Ginty was wearing a bulletproof vest. There. That's the exterminator. It sucked. It was very stupid. Yeah, but, like, Gibney, like, escapes and, like, jumps in the water, and you think he's dead. But at at, like, the very end of the movie... There's sunrise, and he's holding on to this, like, box, which is how he stayed afloat in the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's hilarious is he's floating on this box, and then he stands up, and he's literally in, like, shin-deep water. It's like, <laughs> you probably could have let go of the box a little while ago. I, like, I, I don't know. Like, I kept going back and watching the But end I where, like the box! <laughs> when, when he's, like, he's on the gantry crane that they used to yeah. unload, that they used to move the ships around, right? And that's yep. what he that's what he gets. He gets shot in the chest as he's climbing over the the railing of the gantry crane. I don't know where he was planning to go. That's how he ends up in the water. When they do the establishing shot of the navy yard, the gantry crane is nowhere near any water. <laughs> so he would have dropped off and just like landed on the concrete dock and been <laughs> splushed. And I I kept watching it going like that doesn't make any visual sense. Like it doesn't make any sense. It's everything that's like really bad about low low budget late seventies early nineteen eighties action movies. So whenever the movie started, right? I downloaded the movie from Amazon Prime. I'm gonna watch it uh, in increments because right. it's one of those kind of movies. So I'm gonna watch the first half hour at the gym, and the very first thing I see 
is the name Lloyd Kaufman yep. and Troma Films. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be F-word amazing because Troma is known for making these low-budget movies. They, like, border on parody. Yeah. Like, you're not even sure if they're satire or not. That's right. how bad they are. Their most famous movie is probably The Toxic Avenger. And they, always, yeah. they also tend to be very, very gory. Yes. And they have another one called Poultry Geist, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, this movie's going to be solid gold. Now, later on, I find out that this movie was not a trauma film. It was only distributed by trauma films. Right. Like for the home video market or whatever. Right. Um, that little false information of trauma films is the only reason why I made it through this movie. <laughs> I made it through because I was I remembered the second film, which is exactly the same as this film, only it only has one movie in it, not five. Oh, yeah? Well, I've got news for you, Mr. McLarge Huge. You are going to want to look up a short movie called The Exterminator Retribution, which came out last year. Uh, It doesn't have Robert Ginty in it, does it? Uh, I'm going to guess no, but... (laughs) But you got to see it. You've seen all the Saw movies. You're going to watch this one, too. Yeah, I'll probably have to. I'll probably have to make myself sit through it. Hooray. Uh, it, it says it's short. All right. Before we wrap up the show, I do have the very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, 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 Bill. Which baseball team and or baseball field was the last baseball field team to incorporate... Uh, lights so that they could have n- night games. Uh, um, I'm going to say it's the stadium that the Cubs play in, but I can't remember the stadium name. So Chicago, oh, whatever the Chicago Cubs play in. You can't remember the name of the field? Have you never seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? I don't remember the name of the stadium. All right. you. right. I'll give it to you. It is the Chicago Cubs. It's oh. Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field in Chicago was the last baseball stadium to incorporate lights that they could have night games. All right, one in a row, and and that's why yeah, and that's why their uh, that's why their baseball team is as horrible as it is, I guess. <laughs> that and their low payroll. That's the reason. Okay. <laughs> All right, but that's gonna wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say right. good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special shout out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, or this week was way better than last year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook or Instagram or the hot new social media app that I just made up called SPAC Group. That's group with two O's and two P's. We're looking for Twibbly. Subscribe to the podcast. That way you can guess where and how many times Bill had to edit out the phrase, well, there you go, from Jeff's audio track before publication.